Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. Today we are talking about 1984 Newberry winner, Dear Mr. Henshaw, which was written by Beverly Cleary, illustrated by Paul O. Zielinski, and published by Morrow. We're going to start off with the citation from the Newberry and Caldecott Awards, A Guide to the Medal and Honor Books, which says, Lee Botts starts writing to the author of Ways to Amuse a Dog in second grade. Year after year, the letters and then a diary become vehicles for expressing his feelings about himself, his parents' divorce, and his problems in school. Lee's growth and acceptance of the divorce are tempered with much humor. And I will continue um, with some more information from A Guide to Newberry Medal Winners and Honor Books, 1977 through 1984 by Kinman and Henderson. Lee wants to become a writer and asks Mr. Henshaw how to begin. Mr. Henshaw suggests that he keep a journal. To help himself do this, Lee begins each page with Dear Pretend Mr. Henshaw. As the journal evolves, Lee explores his feelings about his parents' divorce, his mother working, his new school, and new friends. He also painfully explores his feelings about his father's absence and what seems to Lee his lack of interest in his son. By writing his journal, Lee comes full circle and learns to accept his father's way of showing his love. Lee also learns to accept and like himself. The most important lesson of all is his growing understanding of why his mother divorced his father, even though it's obvious she still cares for him very much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, I have to apologize for any excess clinking you may hear. Um, the cocktail we're drinking with this is one that I really enjoy, and I'm going to keep drinking it while we talk. I don't enjoy it as much, so <laughs> I will just uh, cover for you while you're <laughs> drinking. <laughs> so I think Lee's an interesting character in that we only hear from him yeah that's true the story is completely within the parameters of his letters and his what he wants to tell mr henshaw and then what he is willing to reveal to himself and that's very interesting to me especially because i was very into ramona as a child and i'm still that's like one of my first sure loves <laughs> of children's books but in children's books but um it's so much more introspective than any of the ramona books or henry huggin books or you know, socks, even though it's kind of sad. <laughs> Definitely more introspective than uh, Ralph S. Mouse. Yes. So. No motorcycles. Yes. What I thought was interesting was that I originally was sort of down on this book because it is so simple. Um, and as an adult reading it, you're like, oh, a little bit. But then you think about how it's um, pretty subtle. And the character development is really good. And for a kid, this book is amazing. Um, it's, it's, I like how you've got character development of characters that don't actually exist in the book. Like the mom and the dad and the author that he's writing to. Like, you want to you wanna grab him and be like, you don't see what's going on here. Like, it's amazing. I like how she does that. Mm -hmm. And I like that we never see... Hen uh, Mr. Henshaw's letters back. No. We only see Lee's reactions. I think that that's really genius. And I haven't seen another epistolary novel that does that. 
No, I, I haven't either. Even the one that's a read-alike for me, it doesn't have that. Yeah, I've got like two or three. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. they they almost always, if it's not direct responses, it's still correspondence between yeah. different people. Well, because there's Patricia Reed, the Enchanted mm-hmm. Chocolate Pot. Yeah. I can't remember her co-author on that. Carolyn Stevemer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that whole series is two people, actual two people writing letters to each other. Yes, which I love. Yeah. Um, I guess we can just put read-alikes in right here since we're talking about it. Yeah. Because that was mine also. I love that series and I love how they did it. Um, and then also the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, <laughs> which is for adults, which is just a fun light book really um but that one is interesting because it's between lots of people but the reason that I thought it would be an interesting read alike for this one is because it's also writing to an author Mm -hmm. but that one's fun too yeah um my read alike was actually uh Jacqueline Woodson's Peace Locomotion Mm. and it's from 2009 um Lonnie Motion is writing the letters and he's named himself Locomotion um, he's writing letters to his baby sister. They're both in the foster care system. They both have found forever homes. Um, each of their homes is very different, and they are in different places in life. Um, and this is a sequel to another book that has locomotion in it. It's just really sweet. It hits on a lot of the emotional truths that you you see in Dear Mr. Henshaw, of someone trying to figure themselves out at a young age, trying to figure out their surroundings, how they can contribute, and um, kind of the motivations and actions of their family members. Hmm. Oh, and Griffin and Sabine. Mm -hmm. That would probably be my favorite. I haven't read that in a long time, but that one's so interesting. But yeah, I love how like the whole concept of the epistolary novel is letting you see truths about a character that they don't know themselves. Mm-hmm. Whether it's about themselves or about the people that they're writing to, it's just, yeah. um, I like how it reveals things slowly. That's true. I, Yeah, I very much agree with that. It's a good way of putting that. I loved some of the things that happen kind of off the page. Um, and then Lee talks about how it, how he did it or what happened at the this event later, like making the lunch ba- box alarm. Yes. I love that part so much. I like that some random person at the library wanted to show him how to make batteries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be like, which, oh, of course you want to make a lunch box alarm. Which feels real. Although I think since 1983 when this was published, I think that the librarian community has gotten more weary of people who want to create (laughs) like small mechanisms that make sound and, or, you know, are potentially explosive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To put it, to put it in a diplomatic way. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, you know, we, you should never code a light code of the librarians, right? You should never, um, not give someone material, um, you should never dig too deep into someone's privacy, but I think that there is a little more kind of um, a little more caution when it comes to small device making <laughs> manuals <laughs> when being stocked in the library since since the this was published. So, but it's very sweet in the story. Yeah, it is, and I love when he um, when he has lunch with the author and. Um, 
he thinks that he's that she, you know she just writes girl books but then she really gets him and kind of calls him on it yeah and he really learned some stuff from her and i thought that was great too so yeah this this is like a very gender neutral book to me yeah i, I think it, he he could be a girl mm-hmm. easily yeah and that's one of the things I don't know. To me, gender issues don't really leap to the front of my thinking when I think about this book. No, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. What I think about is this one of the same things I think about when I read the Ramona books now as an adult, and it's socioeconomic issues. Um, Ramona's family is not well off. It's lower middle class, um, and so is Lee's family, him and his mom. Um, his dad's not around even before the divorce, and his mom is you know, working odd jobs and um, going to school. And his dad's a trucker. And they don't come from much means. No, and they don't have anybody to help. No. They don't have any family, really. Mm -mm. And I feel like that's a very realistic portrayal of, of life for a lot of kids. Yeah, it's very relatable. Which... I, I really was not originally super enthusiastic about this book, but the more I think about it, the more I see why they picked it. I mean, I don't think we've talked about this before, but that the criteria, the main criteria for the Newberry is to be a contribution towards American literature for children. And while it might not be like my most favorite book just to read, um, I can see how this is a huge contribution for children. I mean, it is covering socioeconomic things but also like just really common situations that are relatable and like somebody's getting picked on but they want to try and fix it and there are people who are kind of deadbeats and there are people who are helpful and there's unexpected things that pop up and people who are irritated at you and it's just like really really relatable yeah I think also there's a lot to him um, so you learn that he is kind of left to his own devices a lot and he starts to use that to his advantage. You know, he starts to write, mm -hmm. he starts to really entertain his imagination. There's the thing where he builds the alarm. He decides to start making friends. You see all that inner process happen through the letters and then the diary and, I think that there's a, I think, you know, sometimes there's an idea of, of glamorizing being lower income or poor in both ways. So you have, we were so poor, we had to make <laughs> do from a comb we used as a spoon, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, and it's like so extreme. And then you have, you have the other extreme of like, this person's poor, they're filthy, they're unreliable, they're um, less than, the, you know, kind of this idea mm -hmm. that, you know, being morally corrupt or being a bad person is equated with being poor. And I think you see those things again and again in literature. So I think the, the one of the things that Beverly Cleary gets right every time is that this isn't just one type of person there's a lot of different kids surviving and sometimes thriving in these conditions. Yeah, it just gets portrayed as just life. And yeah, and they don't know that it's supposed to be bad. Right. 
You know, and I think I mean, that's one of the really amazing gifts of her books. And it's such it's such a children's book. Like when you get like the smidge over into tween books or YA books, you get a lot more of that trope of like, here's a person who's poor and ashamed of it or poor and pretending that they're rich and they might get found out. And like, that's the whole premise of the whole book. But like, this is just like the context of the book and has nothing to do with mm -hmm. like the, I mean, really the plot. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, it is nice. And, um, I, you know, you don't know how long that's going to hold out for Lee. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's nice to have this time with him where he doesn't feel fettered by it. In fact, one of the bigger things that's bothering him is just the fact that people are stealing the good things out of his lunches. Yeah. It's not like they're teasing him for being poor. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was a bit of a different direction mm -hmm. for Beverly Cleary. Um, I think she did. I, I really love it. You know. It's um, not a book that I loved to read, but it is a, like a quality book, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I would recommend yeah. it for kids in a heartbeat. Yeah. Definitely. For this, because this was the winner of 1984, the 1984 Newberry Medal, we did a drink and a food. Yep, I had to double down. So, um, oh, I brought the recipe for it, and then we made curry deviled eggs, because Lee's mom works for a catering company as one of her jobs, and um, there's mention that uh, curry deviled eggs are uh, something that sometimes ends up in Lee's lunchbox. So, and I also thought it was a very 80s kind of food. Yeah. Like, it's the kind of food that people who live regular lives outside of a big city would take and put a fancy twist on to try to be more metropolitan for their parties. Yes. So you have deviled eggs and then you just have, like, curry powder in it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think I turned to Marcy and said that it tastes like it a tastes hallway. Like a hallway. And it was so exactly what I was trying to put a name to. Um, and it, it tastes like a like a church's hallway. like A 70s wood paneled, maybe shag carpeted yeah. hallway. It's like a little musty. It has that smell of print and onion skin. But it's not, paper. It's not entirely bad. No. And, and, and like women who are busy, like the smell of their fingers. I know this, <laughs> this is weird. We're getting to some synesthesia stuff. And as we go along... <laughs> You're going to know how far that goes in my brain. But, it's my um, all numbers. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Like seven is yellow. That's awesome. Yeah. Five is red. You, I didn't know you had it too. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but we should talk about this because it's, yeah, it's very strong for me. Um, with Not numbers though. Um, yeah. So uh, it's just a, a, a taste that reminds me of a smell that's very familiar. It's so familiar. Yeah, and I've never had this before. Yeah, it's very familiar and like, you know, kind of comforting and kind of reverent, but also like you're a kid there and you're like, this is for older people. It tastes quiet. Yeah. I don't know how to explain that one. Yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> I get it. But um, the cocktail that we made is called the salty dog because I felt that bandit having been left at a truck stop would be a very salty dog. And then we added some bitters for the same reason, but it's mostly made out of grapefruit juice and gin. Um, I can see that Jenny does not enjoy it. I, I just came up with this term to describe 
myself. So I think I have a non-adult mouth in that I don't enjoy things that are very sour. I mean, like I enjoy things that are sour mm -hmm. and things that are bitter, but it's like like pickles and like jawbreakers. <laughs> like, um, well, okay, so I fall much more on like the sweet spectrum. And this tastes to me like like actually like bandits salty bitter tears <laughs> of rage at being left in the snow at the at a truck stop. Well, okay, I grew up in Florida. So this just tastes like life. Like it's salt <laughs> salt and grapefruit. I mean like it's it's for me it actually funnily enough, it actually reminds me of being the age that he was in the story. Because when I was a little kid, <clears throat> we had this house at the beach and it had a big grapefruit tree in the backyard. And I would wake up early and I would go sit in the grapefruit tree in my pajamas. I would climb up and sit in the branches and just like pick a big grapefruit and eat it. Oh, wow. Um, and so I, anything grapefruit I love. But then also we were at the beach, so like everything had that tinge of salt. So this drink for me is just perfection. <laughs> and I grew, I grew up in, I grew up in South Carolina and I had a tree that I would sit in, but it had like a broken limb that made it look like it was a broomstick. Ooh, very witchy. Yeah, and so I would just like sit up there and pretend to be a witch. Nice. I didn't eat, because they were some kind of spiky chestnuts. Like oh. they were chestnuts with like a big spikes on the cover. And like you had to wear a hat like during certain <laughs> times of the year because they would fall and just like nail you in the head. <laughs> like they were horrifying and they smelled like... It um, sounds like a witchy tree. They smelled <laughs> like chlorine pee. I don't know what kind of tree this was. Listeners, if you know this type of tree, please let us know. Um, but when it didn't have those horrible things growing on it, I would go up in, which is most of the year, I would go up and sit on this branch that was like a, a witch branch. Well, so, it sounds like you needed a witch hat. I did wear a witch hat sometimes when the spiky things were there. Nice. Yeah. But I, there was no fruit. That's mm. that's kind of, I was like, oh, yeah, we both sat in trees, but you <laughs> ate things off your tree, and that was nice. <laughs> it, it, it was delightful. I just hope to not get, like, clawed in the face by the stuff on my tree. What an angry tree. Yeah. Maybe it mm. was a tree man. Oh, please, no. <laughs> oh. If you did not listen to our previous one, go listen to Tales of Coventry. Because the we, wish giver, the wish giver, mm -hmm. because we were talking about angry tree men. Oh, I don't want to that picture with the decapitated head. Oh, <laughs> um, so that brings us to the last book of the 1984 Newberry season. Um, so we have five books, four honors, one winner. Uh, Marcy, which one out of these five would you choose? Would you have chosen as the winner if you were on the committee that year? Um. See, I'm notoriously bad at choosing the winners, no matter what. Like, I always, always get it wrong um, because I tend to skew towards what I enjoyed reading the most. So, I think like, that's okay in this yeah. case. <laughs> so if I, were, if I were really trying to be objective, I think I would still choose Dear Mr. Henshaw because I can see how it's a great teaching tool. It's great for kids. Like, it has all of these aspects that you want in a Newbery book. And it is well-written. It's just very, very simple. But... As far as what I would prefer to read out of the list, I would definitely go for Sign of the Beaver. Okay. I would I would say Dear Mr. Henshaw all the way. But that's that's really, I mean, Beverly Cleary is like part of she's my like, soul. She's like so. the gold standard of children's authors. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, I just out of the five, it didn't depress me, enrage me, upset me. I was mad at his dad. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
And, and sugaring time was also really nice. Actually, that's true. I really, really enjoyed sugaring time, but in a whole different way. Like it kind of yeah. made me just want to go to Vermont. Like I'm glad it was chosen as an honor, but to me that wouldn't be the winner. That would be like the first honor. Yeah. <laughs> and then they, the other ones can kind of roll around together and decide themselves. We thought it would be fun to talk about, um, to mention and talk about a little bit about some of the other books that were published in 1983 that would have been eligible for the 1984 um, Newbery Medal and Honor. Um, and then pick out of the five books that we've discussed and these, what we might have chosen or fought for to be the winner. So we've got quite a few, but um, there is Best Friend Insurance by Beatrice Gormley. Um, Will the Real Gertrude Hollings Please Stand Up by Sheila Greenwald. Willie B. and the Time the Martians Landed by Virginia Hamilton. There is Alana, The First Adventure by Tamara Pierce, which I didn't even realize was published at this time, and I find really interesting because just I'm a big fantasy reader, and so any fantasy for kids is fantastic, and I love it that this started then because it's such a thing. Um, and there are so many great sequels. I'm not sure I would go for it as like a Newbery book necessarily, but I love it that that was sort of contemporary with the other books that we were reading. And then The Celery Stocks at Midnight by James Howe, which I love. And um, I would be so torn about that one if I were actually on the committee because I love all the books that he writes. If it were Benicula, no question, like that would be a contender. Um, but I do love that series. Um, some other ones that were published were um, So You Want to Be a Wizard by Di Diane Duane. Werehawk by Andre Norton, Someday Angeline by Lewis Satcher, and um, if, interestingly enough, The Witches by Roald Dahl was, was mm. published that year, um, which is, no pun intended, which <laughs> is a wonderful book. I feel so like the, good. yeah, I feel like you guys already probably know. Everyone has to know that, right? Already knows this, but... Um, it's it posits that witches are real. It tells you how to identify them, and the main character falls in accidentally into a room full of witches having a conference with the Grand High Witch, and things start to go awry. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Stephen Maines, uh, that game from outer space. Um, I don't. I feel like he was around for a while, and then I'm not sure where he went. I haven't done any research, but. That game from Outer Space, uh, I believe, is the second book in the Oscar J. Noodleman trilogy. You know, I never read those. I was obsessed with those for a really long time, in particular the third one, Chicken Trek. Hmm. But um, that game from Outer Space um, is about Oscar J. Noodleman. He um, gets a video game. It actually turns out to be directly tied to actual aliens who are coming to destroy the Earth. I'm not sure if it's still in print. But all of Stephen Maines's books are just wild and weird, and I just is it like just love them like Ender's Game ish or no? It's much lighter and more cartoony, hmm. but the characters are so bizarre, and the, there's drawings they're illustrated too. Um, I just uh, Stephen Maines is one of my favorites. He always has been, and I you know can't be talked out of it. And um, and then the Dollhouse Murders were by Betty Wren Wright were also written this year and another childhood obsession of mine and another one i haven't read it's 
you know, a girl goes on vacation. It's all very kind of on the moors, even though I think it's like in Connecticut. (laughs) And she discovers that the dollhouse at the vacation house, the dolls are moving. And then one of the dolls is killed by the other dolls. And she has to figure out what is going on. Well, that's creepy. Yeah, it's pretty great. And I would think out of all the stuff we've read... You know, assuming that the witches was dual published in England and the U and um, the U.S. in 1983, that would have been my pick. Yeah, I would have pushed for I, that. I don't see how I could not do the witches because all of the things that can be said for the Newberry contenders can no, not all the things. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a quirky book, but it is so much about being independent. And it's about strong family ties and like solving problems that like sometimes Mm -hmm. the, the main thing that I take away from that. And the thing that I think is so valuable about so many of his books is that sometimes the worst thing happens. Like a lot of books are like, Oh, and you can avert it at the last moment. Like, Ooh, heroic like gesture will save the day. But sometimes the worst thing happens. It just does. But there you have to keep going and sometimes it can be salvaged. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a super valuable lesson. I completely agree. And of course, you know, Roald Dahl, I know, I, you know, historically there were some, he had some not great things that he did and said, um, I think this book is really, it's just so imaginative. It's dark. It's the ingenuity of the main character cannot be understated. And Um, his persistence, like, is just amazing. Yeah. And you're right about the supportive family. Yeah. And Quentin Blake's illustrations, of course, always just make it incredible. Um, So, wow, I guess our Newberry from 19... (laughs) And the 1984 Newberry of us from the Newberry Tart podcast would go to The Witches by Roald Dahl. I totally agree. It's not as uh, wholesome, necessarily, as Dear Mr. Henshaw. Which I'm always a sucker for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Dear Mr. Henshaw would be the first honor and then sugaring time. Yes. And then a lot of the other things that I even now read a lot of, I wouldn't say fantasy, it's just like weird things. So like Beatrice Gormley and um, Betty Wren Wright, you know, all of those, it's just, it's like a mix of like horror and fantasy Mm -hmm. and just weird psychological things. But there's um, been a lot of like interesting books in more recent years mm-hmm. um, that have been chosen. That yeah. have been chosen, like the Graveyard Book and Doll Bones. And When You Reach Me. And When You Reach Me, um, which we will be talking about, I'm sure. But um, I like to see things skewing in that direction. Oh, yeah. Because everything's not always neat and tidy. Well, I, I just think of it this way. I was in a Mock Newberry a few years back when I was in the public library with my fellow children's librarians on the staff. And um, was it The Dark by Lemony Snicket? Yes. Okay. So another librarian said, this is just too dark. This is, this is scary. This is not something for children. And I really felt, and I, I did, I stood up. Not, I didn't stand up physically, but I just said, I was a dark kid. <laughs> I was into dark things. I was fascinated by all sorts of things like that. And this book would have been amazing to me, even from a very young age. So there are kids out there for all the genres that adults enjoy. There's kids out there for those too. Well, I mean, we were talking before about like Christopher Pike books and all of those. Like they wouldn't be as popular as they were, you know, if kids didn't have that side. Yeah. And I think it does kids a disservice to lump them all into one category or to assume that 
only like the sweet little golden books are you know appropriate for them with that that's we're done yeah the with the of, season the end of our first season i'm sure we have a lot of uh tweaks to make but thank you so much for bearing with us and for listening i hope you enjoyed it and we hope to hear from you through our website Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com. <laughs>